This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this program, Bill Southworth explains how a plague of rabbits ruined many a farmer in central Otago. Gregor Campbell tells us how paranoia about German spies ran riot during the First World War. Sarah Gallagher looks at the life of famous early surveyor John Turnbull Thompson. And finally, we hear how Spates Brewery got a beer barrel on its chimney. The large sheep stations that were set up in central Otago in the 19th century struck an unexpected and nearly fatal problem. Rabbits. Millions of them. They stripped the land of grass, and their ravages brought ruin to many. This report from Bill Southworth. Individuals and even some acclimatisation societies imported rabbits, usually for sport. By 1857, they could be seen playing amongst the sandhills at Bluff. The Southland runholder got some as pets and soon was to rue the day. In a few years, rabbits forced him to abandon his property. By 1875, the rabbits, which were from Spain and Portugal and thus acclimatised to dry areas, were established in central Otago. In a decade, that spread to all parts of Otago and Southland. In the 1890s, they overran the Mackenzie country. A single female rabbit could have 45 offspring in a year producing a litter of four or five kittens every six weeks. Rabbits can breed at five months of age, so a female born in the early spring will produce young within the same breeding season. Rabbit populations commonly increase eight to tenfold in just one season. Over the years, they've cost New Zealand farmers many millions of dollars, largely through loss of farm production. Their impact on the drier areas of central Otago has been little short of an ecological disaster. The vegetation grazed off by rabbits has never recovered. In 1866, rabbits were seen on the Unsclue station, much to the delight of the owner, who actually had a poacher prosecuted for shooting some. His joy turned to regret when the animals, increasing at an incredible rate, destroyed his farm. By 1870, rabbits had crossed the Clutha and begun the invasion of the Galloway station. Rabbits are particularly well adapted to semi-arid areas, and within a few years, the whole of the Manuherakia had been overrun. Nothing like it had ever happened before, and despair set in. The advancing horde seemed to be unstoppable. Between 1877 and 1884, farmers gave up 75 runs in Otago because of the impact. By 1887, almost one and a half million acres had been abandoned to the rabbits. Guns and dogs were initially used against them, but with limited success. Poet Arnold Wall summed up the situation well when he wrote, Where the sheep feeds, there feed I. Depleted lands behind me lie. Of dogs and guns I take no heed. I only breed and breed and breed. Poisoning eventually gave farmers some control. Compassionate considerations were given little consideration in the battle. Poisoned, phosphatized oats were used and were partly successful for a time, but the rabbits suffered agonizing deaths. 
Poisoning was also a disaster for native ground birds such as weka and native quail, which went extinct in many areas. The voracious appetites of the rabbits were the undoing for some. In many areas, they completely stripped the land of all vegetation and started feeding on tussock roots, in some cases dying of starvation after leaving nothing but a barren waste. Rabbits have been known in extreme cases of starvation to survive by eating their own faeces and extracting what nourishment remained there. The bigger sheep stations hired a small army of men to shoot and poison the rabbits. In 1882, it was reported that 45 men were employed on the Ardgar station, rabbiting, and other stations employed a similar number of men. According to an article by Robert Pedden in Tiara, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, At Kawarau Station near Cromwell, rabbiters took 244,000 rabbit skins in 1884 and 283,000 in 1885. Because of this infestation, the productivity of the station fell dramatically. The number of lambs birthed per ewe fell from 70% to 45%. Mount Nicholas Station at Lake Wakatipu carried 20,000 sheep through the 1870s, but rabbits ate out the feed, and by 1888 the flock was reduced to 2,000. At the north station at the head of Lake Wakatipu, John Butamant had 37,000 sheep in 1880. Rabbits grazed out the vegetation where he wintered his flock, and in 1886 he was forced to drop his sheep numbers to 17,600. The following year he was bankrupted. The mortgagor could not find a purchaser for the leases, so they were abandoned. Finally, in 1876, the government tried to deal with the problem. It passed the Rabbit Nuisance Act, which empowered local bodies to strike a special rate to deal with the rabbits. Even the introduction of natural enemies was tried. In 1888, 200 pheasants were delivered at Taurus. It's doubtful whether they made much difference to the rabbit numbers, but they certainly created havoc amongst the chicken flocks and local bird life. Rather than poisoned oats, poison phosphatized wheat bran called pollard proved to be much more effective. As the Matara Ensign reported on February the 19th, 1895, at Wednesday's meeting of the Tuapeka Farmers Union, the President stated he had prepared and used a quantity of the pollard poison, finding that the rabbits took it greedily and that it was very deadly in its effects. He was fairly surprised at the number of dead rabbits he picked up after putting down a small quantity of the preparation. He found that young rabbits, which seldom touched the phosphorized oats, took the prepared pollard very readily. It was an advantage to make the baits as small as possible. He would certainly advise farmers to give the preparation a thorough trial, for he was sure they would be well satisfied with the results. Pollard helped to turn the tide. By 1900, the worst plagues of rabbits in Central appear to have been beaten, at least in the meantime. A new industry also came into being. Exported rabbit skins fetched two and six each, and a good living could be made by a skilled rabbiter. Properties in Terrace and Lindus were divided into rabbiting blocks, and in Terrace alone there were 40 rabbiters earning a really good living. A rabbit canning factory was even opened in Cromwell, with an intake of 10,000 carcasses a day. However, when it was rumoured the factory was handling poison carcasses, it was forced to close down after a year or two. There continued to be further rabbit plagues. Another increase occurred in the early 1920s. There was a major surge in the 1940s, and again in the late 1980s. 
1999, the national production losses due to rabbits was estimated at $50 million. In the late 1940s, rabbit boards were set up. The Lindus Rabbit Board was responsible for an area of 270,000 acres and employed 31 men. The tally for the first months of organised operations was 83,235 rabbits. In the 1960s, there was a big breakthrough in the destruction methods when boards began dropping poison baits from the air. It allowed hill country to be properly and effectively covered. In 1956, a new poison, sodium fluoroacetate, commonly known as 1080, was introduced. It was tasteless and odourless and was impregnated into chopped carrots. The results were phenomenal and by the early 1960s it was the main poison used and has been used almost exclusively ever since. It has also of course spawned a protest movement which opposes it because it can also kill other species. Although infestations of rabbits flare up from time to time now, they're generally considered to be under control, causing one author to add the following verse to Arnold Wald's poem. On the land that the bunny once made bare, the scent of clover fills the air. The tussock thrives again, indeed. Today there's feed and feed and feed. For much of this material, I'm grateful to Geoffrey Duff for his book, Sheep May Safely Graze, the story of Morven Hill Station in the Taurus District, and to Tiara, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand. This is Bill Southworth reporting. During the First World War, paranoia developed about German spies being everywhere. Dunedin's St. Clair became the centre of such foolishness. It was harmless enough at first, but then it developed into more than just rumours. Gregor Campbell reads from a report in the Truth newspaper about vigilante justice taking over. Towering over St. Clair, and over the sea beside which it is situated, is a well-known residence known as Cargill's Castle. The little stronghold is occupied by a respectable, hard-working man and his quite industrious family. They have never offended anyone and have always minded their own business. Possibly it was because they were so capable of looking after their own affairs that the leisurely gossiping she-males of the borough became so intensely interested. The gentleman who occupied Cargill's castle has no Teuton blood in his veins, he has been over 40 years in New Zealand and is a contractor and farmer. He's a self-made man and more British than many of the British themselves. Nevertheless, the old maid's gossip fixed itself upon him and his home and it was seriously rumoured that German spies infested the castle and were signalling out to sea and receiving messages. These were no rumours so far as truth is concerned. For several worthy ladies interviewed Truth's rep and laid their suspicions and charges bare. Those worthy ladies said they had failed to arouse the local press and police and military and would Truth launch out and expose everything? By all means, was the assuring reply, if there is anything to expose. Truth investigated, day in, day out, losing much valuable time and expending considerable energy with the result that the conclusion was reached that there was nothing to expose except the vagaries of the ladies themselves. But, by the way, it is worth mentioning that the dear ladies who favour to utilise truth as an additional yoke upon the phantom mare quietly remarked, Of course, 
we do not usually read truth, but in the exceptional state of affairs that menace St. Clair, where so many select people live and are threatened, we're glad to avail ourselves of anything that can help in arousing our sleepy authorities. Truth's rep. Thank the ladies. And behind the piano had a giggle all to himself. As stated, Truth fully investigated and was officially assisted in much that was discovered. But the ladies and bachelors of St. Clair could not be calmed. Truth's rep could not calm them. The police could not allay their fears. Even the military authorities were powerless. Members of parliament were then invoked and the big boss guns of the Defence Department. Flying visits were paid to Dunedin and Sinclair, detectives were pushed into the spy-infected district, and batches of khaki men with fixed bayonets. All to no avail. Nothing was discovered. But the ladies shrieked that there was any amount to discover. The tapping and night flashings were quite apparent. They knew there were spies by the score in Sinclair, and they would not believe otherwise, possibly until some unfortunate innocent was sabred or shot. Happily for St. Clair's reputation, nothing so tragic occurred, though at times a tragedy was imminent. It was unsafe for a stranger to be seen in the district, whether he happened to be a bloke in broadcloth or khaki. One dark night, a body of armed men surrounded the castle. The investors shouldered rifles with bayonets fixed. The lady in the castle looked out and saw them, and a peremptory crack on the hall door demanded the boss of the castle. A frightened female voice from within whimpered out that Father is away, in the country on the farm. Open the door and let us in, was the summons. The ladies would not open the door, as those without had neither warrant nor authority for their behaviour. The women within were unprotected, and they would not trust so many strange wild men in the house. Loud blows echoed on the door, and, battered and smashed, the door gave way. Into the hall, the bedrooms, the cellars, and the little tower surged the armed men. They invaded the sacred privacy of the ladies' apartments without warrant or authority of any kind, and they instituted a search from tower to cellar. They discovered nothing, and, crestfallen, they slunk away into the night one by one. In terror and tears, the poor ladies of the castle put in the remainder of the night and many a night after until the master of the house came home. That is one incident. Truth does not comment on it beyond asking, who were the heroes? By whose authority did they break into a private house and invade the sanctity of the ladies' sleeping apartments? The police had nothing to do with it, Neither had the responsible military authorities. It was the grim hand of uncontrolled militarism with a vengeance, spurred on by old maids' yarns. That report from the Truth newspaper was read by Gregor Campbell. No man did more to survey the South Island for early European settlements than John Turnbull Thompson. Sarah Gallagher has been looking at his life. Surveyor, engineer, artist, author and translator of Malay, John Turnbull Thompson has left an indelible impression on the southern part of Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
Thompson was born in Northumberland in 1821, and following an education in mathematics and engineering, he spent 15 years as Singapore's government surveyor. The construction of the magnificent Horsburgh Lighthouse on the Singaporean Strait affected his health, and after convalescing back in the UK, he immigrated to New Zealand in 1856 and became chief surveyor of the Otago province. Thompson spent the next two years on a reconnaissance survey, exploring, mapping and naming geographic features of Otago and Southland. His great-grandson, the historian F.G. Hall-Jones, OBE, recalls, By observations of the sun, he fixed the latitude of Bluff Hill and later of the Mid-Dome. He ascertained the true bearing between, nearly north, with this information, he was able to calculate without measurements the exact distance between, about 70 miles. This was the baseline of his map. By taking the true bearing from both to any particular hill or bush, he was able to fix that place on the map and calculate its distance, still without the need for measurement. Travelling the countryside and taking bearings every few miles, he could fill in every important detail. The system was quick, cheap, and sufficiently accurate for preliminary purposes, within 1-2%. to 2 And thus, Thompson developed the uniform and consistent survey framework we continue to use today. Thompson surveyed Invercargill, Campbelltown, now Bluff, and Oamaru. In his supplementary role as chief engineer, he surveyed roads and designed bridges which opened access to the goldfields. It's notable that two of his bridges on State Highway 1 at Wainakarua are still in use today. Thompson organised harbour works, the demolition of Dunedin's Bell Hill and the reclamation of the Dunedin foreshore. Wherever he went, Thompson drew and painted his surroundings, and collections of his work can be found in a number of collecting institutions, including National Library, Te Papa, Hocken, and also in private collections. In terms of the development of this part of the country, how our cities were formed and have been developed, we owe Thompson a great deal. Thanks to his paintings, plans, writings and will, we know his hand, his thoughts and recollections, his work, his designs, and we know his final wishes. Thompson's attitudes of the time are clearly outlined in his book Rambles with a Philosopher and are an uncomfortable read at this point in our history. Thompson appears in accepting of the philosophy of natural selection and describes a creeping invasion of non-indigenous birds, plants, trees and fair-haired lassies across the country, seeing these changes as a betterment of the existing environment and a fait accompli. Of interest are his descriptions of engagement with local Māori and their conveyance of geographical knowledge and his own contributions of names to the region. Early explorers and surveyors employed Māori as guides or survey assistants, tapping into their great knowledge of aratafito or trails across the country, around the coast and waterways. When Thompson made his preliminary survey of the site of Invercargill in 1857, he was drawn a map of the lakes and rivers by Reko from Tūturo in Muriheku, who had guided Henry Mantell 20 years earlier. In his book, Ramblings of a Philosopher, Thompson recounts an early encounter with Rico, who shared the geography of the interior, which was unknown to Europeans at the time. He, with great alacrity and intelligence, drew first a long line across the floor, which he denominated the Mata'o. 
the Molyneux of Captain Cook and then the Cluther of Captain Cargill. He then described an irregular circle around the floor, which he denominated the seashore. At the head of the Mata'au, he drew three eel-shaped figures, which he called Wakatipu, Wanaka and Hawea. He now drew the Matoura, issuing closely from the south end of the Wakatipu. The Oreti River, he also drew, is coming from near the same source. The Waiao and the Waitaki rivers he described as issuing from large lakes, to which he also gave their present names. Thompson's extensive exploration of the interior on his reconnaissance surveys saw him apply many names from his home country on the landscape. Harry's Beatty describes these in his book, Otago Place Names, and notes those with animal names. Of all his names, the ones that have been most criticised are 14 burns, running into the Tyree. Cap, U, Philly, Gimmer, Hog, Horse, Hound, Kai, Pig, Sow, Stot, Swine and Weather. The one that to which most exception is shown is Swineburn, and this is sometimes softened to Swinburn. There are also a U range and a Weather range, a Weather Hill in the Takatemus and a Horse range. The latter derived its name from the surveyor's pack horse straying. Following the abolition of the provinces in 1876, Thompson was appointed New Zealand's first Surveyor-General and headed up the new survey department based in Wellington. Named for the burial place of his ancestors, the Turnbulls of Earnslaw, Lenor was the retirement home of John Turnbull Thompson, which he built in Gladstone in Vicargill. Sadly, Thompson only enjoyed two years living at Lenor before his death at the age of 63. His wife Jane and nine daughters survived him, and the house has overall stayed within the family ever since. The house was designed to resemble Thompson's childhood home, Glalorum, in Northumbria, and Lenor is a fine example of a large Victorian house. Its garden and grounds are particularly special, with significant plantings and trees. In 1927, one of Thompson's daughters made the grounds available for the local garden club to visit, and a report from the Southland Times details many of the spectacular plantings and the grounds. The first of a series of inspection visits arranged by the garden club came off on Saturday when favoured by the best of weather. Some 50 members set out for Lennel, the well-known residence of Miss Thompson at Gladstone. Rhododendrons were the chief flower sort, but Lennel possesses many and varied beautiful garden subjects that the two hours spent there went by very quickly. Entering by the main gates and following the drive, which sweeps gracefully round to the front of the residence, we pass between magnificent specimens of conifers and English trees and shrubs, many of these towering up 40 feet high and overhanging the drive, forming a perfect leafy canopy, all tints of green, and on such a sunny day, this view alone was well worth the visit. Emerging onto the lawns in front of the house, we see on our left immense rhododendrons in full bloom, perfect specimens covered with hundreds of trusses of bloom set in healthy foliage. The pale pink Charles Lawson is profusely grown here, and Mr A. Newman, who has for many years been in charge of these extensive grounds, is a great champion of this variety.
Today, Lennell is recognised as a Category 1 historic place and is situated in large grounds within Historic Garden. The owners, descendants of John Turnbull Thompson, are making wonderful progress with funding from Heritage New Zealand's National Heritage Preservation Incentive Fund to restore the Heritage Gardens. You can follow their progress on their Facebook page. And you can find this story on our Heritage List online at heritage.org.nz. This is Sarah Gallagher reporting for Heritage Matters. Spates Brewery in Dunedin's Rattray Street has a most unusual chimney. Gregor Campbell explains why. In 1938, the Spates Brewery demolished its old brick chimney by knocking holes in the base, wedging stout pieces of wood in those holes, then setting fire to the wood. It was brought neatly and efficiently down, and the names of the bricklayers found in an old lemonade bottle in the top. Spectators were impressed, but less impressed was a correspondent to the Otago Daily Times who made his, or possibly her, feelings known in a letter with regard to the new chimney. To the editor. Sir, when coming down Rattray Street this morning, I was amazed to see that behind the scaffolding at the top of the new chimney now being constructed for Spates Brewery, the top of the chimney is being finished off in the form of a beer barrel. This chimney is directly in front of the girls' high school and close to St. Joseph's Cathedral, and I consider that... When the scaffolding is taken down, this structure will be a permanent disfigurement to our city. A visitor coming to Dunedin will be impressed by the fact that one of the most conspicuous landmarks of the city is in the form of a beer barrel. I trust that the authorities concerned, principally the City Architects Department and the Amenities Society, will immediately take the matter up and endeavour to get the directors of New Zealand Breweries Limited to alter this undignified exhibit. I am, etc. Disgusted. Apparently, according to the people of Spates and as part of their brewery tour, the beer barrel was added to the drawings in the architect's office by someone, nobody knows who, as a joke. And when the Spates people saw it, they liked it. The permanent disfigurement may be seen from many places in Dunedin City, including the high school and cathedral, to this day. And I am the not-at-all-disfigured Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. 
Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Check out visitheritage.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.